The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. This is an origin story. An origin story about several disciples. I think we're pretty compelled by origin stories. There's an origin story, as you know, in every superhero movie, if any of you still watch them. Uh, every biography has an origin story, or it's probably not going to be written. Uh, there was an episode of This American Life a number of years back called Origin Stories, about origin stories. And it was really, uh, it started off about Apple uh, getting started up and Hewlett Packard and YouTube. Um, the story goes that these really influential, powerful organizations were started by these ingenious founders who basically did it all by themselves in their garage. And they did do stuff in their garage, but it's really, really misleading. The idea that they did it all by themselves. Steve Jobs was already working with Atari and had a lot of people who connected him to early investors, and he got like some tech help there, and relationships were really key in getting started. Wozniak, also with Apple, if, if I'm speaking to people who know what I'm talking about, I think, um, a lot of you tech heads out there. Wozniak was already with Hewlett Packard and had tons of tech experience already. And yes, they worked out of the garage, but there was a lot of different kinds of capital, social, financial, relational, that others had connected them to first. Now, in the origin story of these disciples, think about this. Their names are known by billions. 
uh, both alive and asleep in the Lord. Their names are known by billions. And these are pillars of the church. They are part, part of the foundation that Christ used to build his church. And the gospel accounts are really quite clear that the last thing they did was make a name for themselves on their own. It's just not, not what happened. These are their origin stories. It starts like this. John the Baptist was on the scene first, if you're familiar with all the gospel accounts. He's this forerunner telling people, get ready. They needed to get ready for Jesus. They needed to have their hearts wake up a little bit with both a hopeful and a hard word. And he laid it on. He spared no hard word and no hopeful word about who Jesus was, why he mattered, and that he was coming. But as soon as Jesus arrives in public, he says, twice actually in John chapter 1, these verses only require, uh, only in the verses I read, we're only reading the second time that he said publicly, we can imagine him shouting it, there he is, behold the Lamb of God, which is a very interesting, very important title that we're going to come back to toward the end. Behold the Lamb of God, and his disciples say, okay, and they go from him to Christ. First one is Andrew. The other one's unnamed. We have very good reason to believe it is John, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle who recorded this gospel and the other three epistles by the same name at the end of our New Testaments and the book of Revelation. It's unnamed here. So they go after Jesus. John directs them towards Jesus and Jesus sees them in verse 38. Just imagine like you're walking and like kind of look back and you see people following you. You look back again and Jesus stops and just turns around and says, what are you seeking? And they don't really answer the question. Look how they answer. They just say, where are you staying? They kind of know. Being a disciple, they had already been a disciple of John. Being a disciple in the first century in Israel was a big deal. It meant going where your rabbi went. It meant memorizing his words. It meant doing, learning how to live the way your rabbi lived. They probably did not understand what John meant by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but they knew John, who was this very powerful, very, very prophetic, very unafraid, very Old Testament-like prophet figure who they were following, and he's saying, I am really, really negligible relative to this one who's coming, and he's so mighty that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So they say, okay, John, we'll follow him now. And they just say, what are you up to? Where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. I mentioned already during the service, I spent Thursday night with college students. I spent Thursday night on Temple's campus. And uh, the students at Temple right now in their ministry group are doing a series called uh, Jesus is Beautiful or The Beauty of Christ, something like that, right? And they're looking at the beauty of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And I think this is a really great idea. Here's why. Um, there are a lot of ways to commend Jesus to people. A lot of ways to commend the Christian faith to people. For example, you can use a moral argument. 
Why believe anything is good and evil ever unless there's a transcendent standard outside of ourself that we just don't come up with our own out of some kind of enlightened self-interest and choose to believe that it's good or evil? There's moral arguments like this, moral arguments. There are um, they're historical arguments. Why in the world did these apostles, who really denigrate themselves in the words of Scripture in the Jesus narratives, who really seem to not know who he is right after he's crucified and apparently risen, according to their testimony, why are they so ready to die because of the witness that a man is risen from the dead if he's not actually risen from the dead? Who runs into death because of a lie? This is only one of many historical arguments. There's the material and the chemical arguments, like, is it actually possible Really, do we, do we act like this about anything, that something as impossible as a single strand of DNA just exists accidentally in the world and wasn't created by a God who wants to make himself known and so and so, so on and so forth. It goes and there are volumes of libraries dedicated to apologetic defense of the faith arguments. And the student, students at Temple are saying, we're not actually going to get into any of that this semester. And for all we know, that is the best way in some contexts and some moments to commend Jesus to people. But you know what they're doing? They're just talking about how beautiful he is. Look at this life. You know, I'll tell you what, there are people in this room and on your block and in our neighborhoods who have sometimes very understandable and sometimes inexplicable walls between them and faith. And there is one way to get at it through the head. Like, let me get you on a conveyor belt and go argument by argument. And if you stay with me and you're not stupid, then by the end of the conveyor belt, you'll be like me and believe the truth. This is one approach. And in some contexts, for all I know, it's not bad. But I got to tell you, in this context, in 2022... I'm not the wisest guy in the world, but I do have eyes open, and I talk to a lot of you and a lot of our neighbors. There is really something to be said about the resonance of beauty that is otherworldly and that is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. Just look at him. And it's not for nothing that it's the first evangelistic appeal of Jesus in the Gospels. Not let me prove to you why I'm the Son of God. Just come and behold. It's also incredibly biblical to commend Jesus to people, not saying, let me, let me compel your brain, let me set your heart on fire. Not because I'm right or I'm beautiful in of myself, but because we found one. These are the words of the disciples that come running back from the Emmaus Road on Easter Sunday. Didn't our hearts burn within us when we were with this man? Not, look how amazingly, bookishly true this man is. Our hearts were on fire. That's where discipleship starts in the Gospel of John, in the person of Jesus. So good for you all at Temple. Good for you. The earliest invitation was to come and see. What do they see? Well, two things happen immediately as they come and see Jesus. Jesus starts unpacking them in strange ways. Andrew, after Jesus says, come and see, in verse, where do we have it? Verse 40, 
he goes and gets his brother. And you have Nathaniel who goes and finds his friend Philip and says, in the words of Jesus, come and see. So, I want you to see two things when they come and see Jesus. Here are two things that happen to these early disciples as they come and see Jesus. First, they are laid bare. They're told to come and see, but what happens is Jesus sees them. Let me say that again. It's the first thing that'll happen if the Holy Spirit is drawing someone into an encounter with Jesus. We come to see Jesus, but what happens? We're actually seen. That's right there in the text. Secondly, they're not just seen for who they are now. They're seen for who they will become. Did you catch that the first time through? What happens with Peter? Here's what Jesus says of Peter in verses 40 through 42. Again, let me read them again, the verses. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, Here's who you are. You're Simon, the son of John. He could have said more. He could have said, as the gospel goes on, he could have said, you're Simon slow to understand. He could have said, you're Simon quick to act in ignorance, quick to lead before you should. He could have said, you are Simon wobbly in conviction, though quick to profess. I'll talk wobbly in action. He could have said all those things. He says, Simon, the son of John, here's who you are. But then he says, here's who you will be. Your name's going to be Rock. You, one of the wobbliest of all, will become, in a way that you can't foresee, down a path you would never choose, you'll become the Rock on whom I will build my church. Nathaniel. And Philip, verses 47 through 50, let me read that again real quickly, further down. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Because he said, is anything good going to come out of Nazareth? It was actually kind of a slur. Like uh, this like small town yokel is actually worth looking at. Jesus says of Nathanael, look at this. This is someone who, whatever else you can say about him, he's really honest. He says it how it is. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What's Jesus saying? I know you. And I know that you have a slur in your heart about me. And I know that you really don't think that amazing things can happen from small places or through small, seemingly insignificant people. And I see all that, and I see what you're like and you're still totally welcome to be with me. See, this is really important. This is one of the things that happens as you're seen by Jesus. You come and see him. He's actually coming to see you. He will see you 100% with all of your mess, with all of your sin, all of your doubt, all of your immorality, all of your anger, all of your impatience, all of your apathy, all of your idolatry, all of your unworthy goals for your life and for others and for our city. And he'll see it all, and he'll see the unworthiness of it all. He'll see the sin in it all, and he'll say, you're still totally welcome to be around me because I love you. 
It's actually where being seen by Jesus starts. There's no guile when you come to Jesus. It just won't work. And so if you're saying, like, how do all these people who come to Jesus really seem to be into him? I see a lot of holy talk, and yeah, there's some words about sacrifice. It doesn't really hit me. You need to maybe imagine, I guess, before you experience, or talk to someone else about how this works. Actually open your heart before the God who is there and admit everything that is wrong with you. And then experience him saying, I love you. Total sinner, totally beloved. Both those go all the way down. It's called grace. It's called grace, and grace doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with being seen. It doesn't stop with being totally forgiven, and you totally are in Christ because of his cross. Again, we'll get to the Lamb of God thing in a minute. It doesn't stop with him seeing your belovedness go all the way down as you see more of your sin, not less, as you continue in relationship with him. That's also how this grace thing, this discipleship thing works. It doesn't stop there, though. It continues through that to, now just you wait and see what I'm going to make of you, what I'm going to make of you, sinful you, whom I love. Jesus says, Verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Do you believe because I saw you? Because I still want you around? Just wait and see what you're going to see if you hang out with me. Verse 51, he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is a... That's a really significant symbolic thing that Jesus says at the end, but I, I want to hang out one second longer with the being seen piece. And I want you to know, for some of you here, it might take a while. Even people who have been Christians, this can sometimes take a while. There was an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art a number of years ago by a woman uh, named Marina Abramovich, and it's going to sound really, really weird, but the Museum of Modern Art is, is weird. Um, it's modern art. You still have to explain it to me. I actually talked about this at the retreat yesterday for leaders. Um, but here, here's the exhibition from Marina Abramovich. She sat in a chair for a number of weeks, for 12 hours a day, and people took turns sitting across from her, and she just stared at them. And it was actually a social experiment to watch what people do as somebody just beheld them. Watch what happens to people as someone just is fascinated by them and doesn't look away. Let me tell you, some of the toughest people I know could not stand that. You're seen for, for all of who you are, and you're worth looking at still, because you're beloved. Um, I wonder if there's one way that you could live into this today. For some of you, it might be the first step on a path with Jesus. What would actually happen if I took one of these Christian types aside and shared something that I'm a little scared to share and they saw it and said, that's not nothing. I'm not going to say that doesn't matter. I'm not going to say your sin is not wrong, but still loves you. I'm not going to say it's not a risk. 
I am going to say it's where transformation with Jesus starts. It's where through his very body, that's how he describes the church, you experience him, himself, his love for you, his forgiveness, his grace, his welcome. I wonder if some of you today could take one step in that direction. And I have a sneaking suspicion that some of you know that that's what you need. And true belovedness isn't possible without that because then you're always withholding something. Don't see me. Don't look at me. Stay away from me. And Jesus is like, I'm right here. Nathaniel, Simon. Christ knows you as you are and he loves you. Here's a final word on the transformation of others. This is a message to those, not just who are finding Jesus for the first time, but those who are actually bringing people to Jesus, saying, come and see. Come and see. Whenever I think about inviting somebody to church, and I do it, not as often as you might hope from a pastor, but I do it, there's kind of this inner dialogue that happens with me when I say come and see. I start to think of all the reasons why they're not going to like it. <laughs> like, like uh, it might, this has happened before, like I brought somebody on the, the Sunday every quarter where we talk about finances during our announcements time. I'm like, oh, it had to be that Sunday. I actually knew it was that Sunday. I just totally forgot. It's going to be that Sunday where they're like, oh, yeah, that's all that Christians care about is the money. Now, do I think it's wrong or shameful to talk about how money is involved in the mission of God? Absolutely not, but I'm trying to see it through their eyes, you know, and I have this way, I'm like, well, I'm just trying to think of them. We, the leaders went away this weekend, and we rehearsed this phrase from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 63. The Spirit of God gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Basically, that's just the response of the flesh. A flesh response in, in biblical words is like any time that you take the job of the Holy Spirit, me being worried about what somebody else is going to encounter when they see Jesus, the hope of the world, that's a flesh response, the Apostle John would say. And hear this, it's no help at all. What's going to happen when you bring somebody to Jesus? Give it to him. Any way you don't give it to him, that's you taking control that's his. And believe me, it's no help at all. You're worried that one of the more offensive things from John the Baptist is going to come out in a sermon? Something uncomfortable to hear from the, from the epistles that comes out? If you think that you need to manage someone else's encounter with Jesus, I swear to you, it will be no help at all. They just brought him. They just brought him to Jesus. And Jesus tells Nathaniel what he will see, what will become of him. Jesus says, you're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you're not familiar with the Bible as a whole, this is something that actually happened in the life of the patriarch Jacob in the book of Genesis. He's uh, the son of Isaac, son of Abraham, and he's sent out basically to another country to expand his family because his life is in danger, and he's homeless and hungry, and he sleeps on a rock, and God appears to him in a dream, and he sees basically a ladder to heaven 
with angels going back and forth. And what, what Jesus is saying here when he says this to Nathaniel, he's saying, look, you were surprised that a rabbi knew something about you that was impossible for him to know. What you're going to see is heaven and earth coming together in me. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that dream to Jacob. In me, you're going to behold heaven and earth. And Christians of all times and places believe the most beautiful thing you can see is heaven on earth. We pray every week on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth united as they were meant to be at the beginning and as they will be on the last day. And in Jesus, it's a reality now. In Jesus, that's a reality now. And that is all about power, yes. It's all about truth, yes. It's also all about beauty. Come and see. Read his life. Read the words. Have you looked at the life of Jesus? Has it stopped being impressive to you? Is there someone that you would... Is there someone else that you think would do a better job than Jesus Christ as he's pretended, uh, presented to us in Scripture? Is there someone who would do a better job at healing the problems of this city now? To whom else would we go? Come and see. Come and see heaven on earth. And the prayer of this church is, as we receive him for the forgiveness of our sins, that's the Lamb of God part, the one who is heaven and earth embodied actually laid that heaven on earth body down by being crucified on a cross for the atonement, for the covering of, of all of our sins. So that when God looks at you, and you, and you, and you, he doesn't see just your sins, he actually sees heaven on earth. He sees a heavenly citizen who's covered by the sacrifice of the Lamb. Every week we rehearse that, we remember it at this Lord's table. And what we're doing is we are praying, and really responding to the promise of God to be empowered to go out to be heaven on earth in this city. Not because we're perfect, but because this Christ is in us. Look, I said a lot. We're in a series right now, we're starting it today, about... How Jesus brings the faith to people. How Jesus shares the faith with perfect strangers that he encounters. And one of the things that we're going to come back to again and again and again is that you are a unique and irreplaceable ambassador of the beauty of Christ. We say come and see. We also have to say Go and offer. And more of that to come in the weeks ahead. But for now, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I'll say amen.